Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey, Ann Friedman. What's up this week? <laughs> oh my God. This week, I am barely making it across the finish line of this week is how I feel. I, yeah, no, my body is broken. My body is weary. I like, it's, this week was a rough week. It's a rough week. Okay, well, I have something that will be a balm to you. Um, Our guest on today's episode is Christina Catherine Martinez, who is a writer, an art critic, a stand-up comedian, um, a source of endless delight on social media, and, um, you know, someone who I have been aware of for a while, but really decided we needed to talk to her on this podcast when I read her book, Aesthetical Relations, which um, came out in late 2019, but uh, I only got my hands on it this year because it was out of print for a little while due to pandemic supply chain shenanigans. She really has this super unique perspective where she writes about art and its impact, but also from a really personal lens about her experiences as a Mexican-American girl growing up in Los Angeles, her experiences with being treated for cancer, her experiences with working retail and like loving to collect clothes. It really hits on so many different levels and she is a true delight and joy. This makes me really happy as the resident CYG comedian. Thank you. Um, I, <laughs> There's room for I'm both just, of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I am truly, you know, I'm really in awe, honestly, of people who um, are able to write in a funny way. And I think that's what about her work is so fascinating to me because clearly it's a skill and it's hard and not everyone can do it. And I just find... Um, you know, that the funniest people to me are, they're always strong writers. And so, and they're like really fascinating thinkers. And I think that it's really easy to dismiss it as just like, haha, funny. And then you're like, oh, actually a technical skill that a lot of people do not have. So I'm excited to listen to this interview. Same. Here is Christina Catherine Martinez. Are you, a, I mean, are you a comedy fan? Do you identify as a comedy fan? <sighs> No, I mean, I wouldn't say like I am a comedy fan, but that said, I have some like select fandoms. I mean, I think the maybe the only time I've seen you perform live was at Weirdo Night. I'm a devoted Weirdo Night. Oh, fan. you were at Weirdo Night. Okay, yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. Weirdo Nights are definitely, and we'll probably talk about this, but Weirdo Nights because are a very special context where I feel like I can really do the type of comedy performance that reflects a lot of different parts of myself as opposed to well maybe you can do the yeah as opposed to what I have to do when I maybe perform just like in a comedy club or at an indie show I'm glad you saw a weirdo night performance I feel like that's a good representative of what I like to ideally do in my comedy 
Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe you can explain a little bit about Weirdo Night, because I, I do think it's some important context for maybe understanding why it feels more like home to you than uh, maybe, I don't mm-hmm. know, like a loud bar that I might associate with stand up comedy. I'm like making air quotes right now. Mm-hmm. How is it different? What is it? What's, I feel like it's self-expanded. Weirdo Night is a performance <laughs> night. <laughs> a performance night started by this really amazing performance artist named Jibs Cameron, who has an alter ego called Dynasty Handbag. And we, she definitely comes from the queer performance art, art world side of things. And in some ways has relationships with the entertainment industry, is making certain inroads into film and TV and I coming from also the art world, but not even as a performer, but as a writer and an art critic and then becoming a comedian, which I thought was going to be my way of running away from the art world. I thought that was my my exit strategy. And it's sort of like the further I run, the more opportunities I find to just keep playing in that context. But what's really special about Weirdo Night is because it's a performance night run by performance artists and the acts run the gamut of musicians, performance artists and comedians, and sometimes just sort of strange cabaret acts, you know, someone who can do a million hula hoops at once. So to me, it just feels so free because there's, it's such a, it's almost a a no context. It's a context where the audience is ready for anything to happen. And it's a context where people just want to see entertainment writ large and mm-hmm. it's it's not as stuffy as a as an art context where people you know I've performed comedy in art galleries and people are always a little bit less likely to let themselves go and laugh. Um, so this is definitely a lot of smart art world people who are ready to laugh, and that's just uh, that's just the best of both worlds in terms of the you know, art comedy divide, which to me is just completely contextual. I, it just depends on where I'm being asked to perform and what I can bring to that and how tired I am that day, honestly. <laughs> well, you said that you thought comedy was going to be your way yeah. out of the art world or out of art <laughs> criticism. Maybe, maybe take us back to that moment. Like what, like where, where did that enter the picture? Or, or also, why did you want out? Like really paint me a picture. Okay. I kind of fell into art criticism, which is not a a thing that most people, I mean, I don't know, do little girls and boys and and kids dream of like one day being an art critic? You know, I wanted to be an actor and an entertainer since I was little. That was the dream. But I think when you are, when you grow up sort of like a poor Mexican kid in Los Angeles, you sort of live in the shadow of this kind of glamour of Hollywood that you kind of intuitively understand is not for you so Mm -hmm. I did a lot of I actually did a lot of theater and a lot of improv in high school that was my big uh you know outlet I didn't finish college until I was 28 I drifted in and out of community colleges and shit jobs and just was that had no direction whatsoever no one in my family had gone to college they were encouraging in terms of yeah like that would be great if you went to college but no one knew how to help me really and I was working at a, I was working at Fred Siegel, and I had got an internship at a magazine um, because one of the girls I worked with, her boyfriend worked there. So even though I hadn't gone to school at all, this person just gave me an internship as a favor, which was actually huge because I got real experience 
professional writing experience, which is what, what I wanted. And that turned into, I wasn't really happy at a fashion magazine. And it, at the time I was living in Echo Park, my next door neighbor, who was an art critic, we were just having beers on the porch and kind of getting to know each other. And I mentioned that I wanted to be a writer, but I, I didn't really enjoy writing about, I do enjoy writing about fashion. I just didn't enjoy what I was doing because I was an intern. I usually got shuffled off to profile, you know, anonymous CW hunks about really, you know, <laughs> and I was just, a, I just was, it wasn't as glamorous as I thought. And I'm like, well, basically my job is to make really uninteresting people seem more interesting than they are. And this is not what I thought the writing life would be. And he just was like, well, you should try writing about art uh, because you, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it's really difficult and you might find that more fulfilling. And I said, okay, well, how do I do that? And he was like, well, uh, you could write for me because he was the editor of a website. So I, literally just someone shoved this opportunity in my face and I took it because I just had no idea what I wanted for myself. And I felt like it was better than nothing. And in doing that, that, you know, I, maybe I could get a better handle on what I wanted if it was, if I was figuring it out against actually doing something, anything. So, you know, and that's how, you know, how, you know, how, how do you ever build a freelance writing career? I'm sure people ask you this all the time. Somehow it sort of snowballed. I did work really hard at it. I I went to openings. I went to museums. I read a lot. I kind of like, you know, learned criticism on the streets for lack of a better term. And I did fall in love with it. I think I fell in love with the lifestyle, but also you just fall in love with the mode of thinking. You fall in love with the art world is a very weird, special place with some very weird, hyper-educated uh, people that you can't find anywhere else. Um, and after having no commercial gallery experience whatsoever. This gallery hired me to be their director solely based off of my writing. And I was just in over my head. Um, I felt guilty because I had graduated school. I got this really cool, fancy job where I was like flying all over the world and going to cool parties and, you know, doing cocaine with cool people. And I just wasn't <laughs> happy. And I felt like guilty about not being happy because I, I guess ostensibly this is what I was working toward. And then I, I ran into a friend from high school just on the street and I was telling, and they were, I was like, Oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they had, they had gone on to become an actor. They're a working actor. Mm -hmm. And I said something about, told them all about what I was doing. And they were just like, Oh, that's cool. You're like a fancy intellectual lady. And they seemed kind of puzzled by it. And they're like, well, you should, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was such, yeah, I was such a freaking goof my whole life. And just on a lark, they were like, oh, well, you know, you should like, I do improv at iOS. Like you should come do classes. Like you were so funny and so talented at it. Like, it's a shame that you stopped doing that. So I just started taking improv classes uh, around, you know, at like I, you know, get off of my fancy gallery director job and like kick off my heels and put on a hoodie and go to improv. <laughs> Eventually I just, I got, I got fired. I, my bosses from the gallery job. Yeah. They could kind of, it was sort of clear that I wasn't really invested anyway. I think even aside from comedy, I would not have stayed just because it was infringing too much on my writing. But at some point, you know, they took me aside and they were kind of like, uh, look, we know you've been doing open mics. <laughs> <laughs> 
we know you've been seeing someone else. <laughs> kind of. They're like, well, you know, and that that's really one of those jobs where like you need to be the face of the gallery. So just like going to openings and doing all these outings and representing the gallery. And I was you, mostly that free that time I was mostly using to do comedy. And they were kind of like, look, it's clear that it was the nicest thing they could have done. They're like, look, it's clear you don't want to be here, that you want to be a comedian for some reason. So like, maybe you should go do that. And, um, and I did. I've heard you make jokes about um, how comedy pays the bills, but your passion is your day job. <laughs> yeah. And I was wondering if that's like, you know, a joke that's kind of rooted in this time for when you were working at the gallery and, and starting to do stand up, or if it's like, you know, you, you have a day job situation right now that you're sort of like, ugh, like can't wait to jettison this. It's funny. I actually don't, I don't knock day jobs. It's when I, when I first, it's the gallery, it's when I got a day job that was, supposed to be a career that things got frustrating. Um, whenever people, mm. I don't have a day job right now. And I'm, I mean, who knows what's going on? I'm open to one. Uh, because <laughs> I will say that I built my, you know, and things, there were a couple of really significant moments. One was when I think I came home when I was working at the gallery, like I came home from this art fair in New York where I had, you know, this whirlwind of art fairs and collector parties and tepid salmon steak dinners and, I came home and my boyfriend at the time and I just started crying, you know, because I just mm. felt guilty that I should be loving this cool life that I'm leading. And I didn't. And I realized that actually, you know, maybe doing like a little indie show to like 12 people in a garage was actually making me happy and not really sure what to do about that. My boyfriend was like, what do you want? And I was like, um, I think I want to do comedy and write about <laughs> art. And even just as I said it, I was like, oh, shit, I want to do comedy and write about art. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> two, two big money makers. And then, um, <laughs> if anything, the whole engine of my work comes from the tension between these two parts of myself. And sometimes I can get really excited by it. But sometimes I'm just, it's very exhausting. And I feel like my brain and my soul are being torn in half all the time wanting to be seen as smart versus wanting to be seen as funny versus just like wanting to be adored versus wanting to be admired. You know, I, I will say, <laughs> and so, so there are a few, there's a few, there's few very special contexts where I feel like these things can be integrated. Yeah. This book is, is another context where I felt like I worked something out that incorporated a lot of different parts of myself. I want to ask you more questions about the book, mm -hmm. but before we go there, I I find myself curious to hear what you think about the way power operates in the worlds of art and comedy respectively, like like how it's the same, how it's different. I want to talk more about like, you know, how you situate yourself and your work between those worlds. But before we do that, like what about the stuff that's outside of you and sort of how people prove themselves or gain the power to like be the fullest version of themselves in that world? Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the same. The, the details are different, but it's essentially the same as that people that come from money are definitely have more of an advantage. Um, Privately, I have a lot of conversations with both comedians and artists who just don't feel like they can call themselves that because because of where their money comes from, and and mm. it's shitty. That's a work. That's a, that's a working class thing because you know 
a, a rich person <laughs> has no problem calling themselves an artist <laughs> just because and as doesn't care that their money maybe happens to come from their family but a person who has to work right. for themselves has a really hard time calling themselves an artist if they're actually a bartender or a copywriter and I think about that a lot as well. Like I, I was even trying to just think of like, God, where did my money come from this last month? And it was like, well, there was some essay writing and there was some journal, there was some, uh, you know, magazine writing. And then there were some, there were some days where I just was a PA on a shoot because I like swallowed my ego. And there's producers that I've worked with as an actor that I have made known that like, if they need just production help, I will do that, you know, for money. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, the power comes from the constant sense of doubt that people from a certain background feel about what constitutes participation in this world. And it's always social. It's always some some dumb bullshit. You know, I don't go to art openings very much at all anymore. And I've actually been publishing some of the best stuff I've ever published in better magazines. And I just did a commission for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in some ways, I'm more embedded in the art world than I've ever been. And yet I also feel so outside of it because I've, in order to actually do the work, I've had to drop a lot of, I mean, we all did last year, but I dropped a lot of the social mores and especially social media expectations of being a person in the art world. And there's analogs in comedy. So it's just this Ouroboros of backslappy bullshit. And it... <laughs> It's tricky. I I don't think it's meaningless. I think it does matter to an extent, but the strategery, to use uh, the term from our hollowed President George W. Bush, um, (laughs) the strategery around building a creative life can somehow just like supplant the work itself. And um, that's something I've had to deal with. It's scary. It's scary to feel like you're disappearing. And I know people, a lot of people operate from that position of if I don't have a social media exposure, I'm not here. You know, you know, when I had a day job at the startup, which was a pretty good job, and I had vacation time, you know, I would use my vacation time to fly to art fairs and to cover those and then cover them for an art magazine. And hmm. I'm sure that gave them and I and I was aware and I done did not work very hard to disabuse anyone of the notion that like, oh, this is just my jet setty journalist lifestyle. When actually it's like the fee that I got for writing the piece about the art fair definitely did not cover how much it cost for me to get there. It was my day job that allowed me to do that. But, you know, on social media, it's just like, wow, Christina's flying all over the world and writing about this stuff. She must really have it together, but then also make it known that like, well, but I still need money. Like, well, but I'm still looking for work. Well, I don't Mm -hmm. want to look too successful because then maybe people will stop giving me opportunities. You know, and I have, I've had people email me, even just for copywriting stuff, which is mainly my bread and butter right now. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know if you're too busy or you're still doing this. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> I want to take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about the book, because I also have lots of questions for you about that.
I really truly love the book as a whole. And um, but but in thinking about talking to you today, there one thing I was like I have to be sure to ask about is your description of finding your voice, which is like one of those perennial creative topics that mm-hmm. like people feel young young artists especially I think feel particularly hand ringy about and and maybe also listen maybe artists at all stage like what is my voice at this stage how do I find it and I I really love what you wrote about it which is that you're not missing it you're just scared to pay the price of finding oh it. my god and, <laughs> and I would love to hear you talk about that because I was like whoa some underlines were happening <laughs> I underline that thing in my own copy of the book. It's one of those things I'm like, I can't, <laughs> yes. I can't believe I wrote that. I love it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, this is what, the thing about writing is that it's supposed to be your only way out. And you think it's going to be easy because it's free, just a pen and paper, but all that talking will cost you. You run all over the goddamn planet trying to find what mentors and well-wishers have referred to as your voice. And it's not that you're constantly missing it so much as you're scared to pay the price of finding it. I, and it, it was, I was just scared. I mean, that came after the big long essay about having, uh, about having cancer, uh, my cancer essay. And at some point I just couldn't, I couldn't write without bumping up against everything that I was running from about myself and all this stuff that I was too embarrassed to talk about or felt painful to talk about, or even just embarrassed to use writing as a way to just describe my experience about things I didn't understand and feeling like, I mean, it's, it's weird to say, but it's basically like, well, I wanted to be a specific kind of intellectual, which was like a white East coast wasp, you know? And that was like my fantasy of a different kind of life because I'm like a, you know, a white Mexican California girl. Um <laughs> I, I guess like, yeah, I mean, the, the price of finding your voice is that you can't control what it is. And I was trying to control that from the outside. Mm. It's like, I'm going to be this hot shit auto theory bitch. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my conception of what a writer was, was just so externally informed that I was afraid of. Yeah. Like that when I, when I finally got to a place where it was maybe coming from a more honest place that like, I wouldn't like it or other people wouldn't like it. And, you know, sometimes both of those things are the case. And it's just like part of me, like growing to be a more uh, whole person allows that to, ha- to, to be the case. Mm. There is, there is absolutely, I mean, I'm sorry if this sounds discouraging. There's absolutely a price for finding your voice or being like true to yourself. I, I want, I, Oh, I wanted to ask you a question because I don't know if this would be, uh, I don't know if the people will be listening to this podcast like, what the hell is going on? How would you describe the book? Like if you had to be like, oh, my friend, if you're like at coffee with someone and you're like, oh, you should read, or maybe, you know, not assuming you would recommend it, but you know. No, I 100% would recommend it. That's what this interview is. I only talk to people whose work, I, it's not even like a tacit endorsement. I'm like, this is valuable space that I only share with people who are doing work I think is valuable you know so like totally it's an endorsement um how would I describe the book well I might say something like this which is that I really like 
art criticism, mm. but I don't have a real capacity for like, I don't subscribe to art forum. I'm not going to sit down and like read back to back reviews of, you know, different exhibitions or whatever. Mm-hmm. I like it when, um, people write about art in a way that butts up with lived experience. And so this book is really nailing it for me on that front. Oh, like I love that's sweet. Yeah. That's exactly Sorry. it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I really like this, your kind of singular experience of the world and like, you know, with, um, you know, the, the benefit of like how you see and appreciate art with like some really fucking funny parts as well. Um, it was, it's really just, you know, and I, I love a slim tome. I would call it a slim tome, which is, um, which is fantastic. It's you know, it. it's like slip Thank it you. into a pocket. Yeah. It's an air, yeah. it's an airplane read. A lot of people text me to say that they, they, they're reading it on their plane to New York or from New York. And I'm like, I, it's a perfect airplane read. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually already, yeah. I, unfortunately, I mean, it was such a, unfortunately I could already feel the next book starting. And it, that's not unfortunate. That's amazing. It's so it's so exhausting. Like it's it's like falling in love. Where I'm just like, oh god, <laughs> I know this feeling. This is happening again. Really, I have I have a lot of favorite chapters, but I do want to I do want to talk about the uh, cancer chapter for a second because okay. I want to know if it felt necessary to include it in the book. Like if it felt like you were making. Um, you know, I don't know, everything we were saying earlier about mm-hmm. like, you know, paying the price, does it, did it feel difficult to include? Like, I, I, I don't know. I'd love to hear about the, your process of deciding, yeah. um, you know, the way it fit into the rest of this book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes and no. It actually came out of, I, I got sick in 2011. I think I was sort of done with everything by like 2012, but I just didn't want to talk about it at all. And frankly, you know, when I, even when I was sick, I actually didn't talk about it at all. The only people that knew were my immediate family and my boyfriend and my best friend. I think it was what I needed at the time, but I just kind of like disassociated. Like I sort of just wasn't there for most of it. And then one night had like a rare moment of clarity and an urge to get it down. And just for my own reference or own history, I felt like that was, important it started just with the color which is actually the color of the book um that this artist did this very strange installation that was a bunch of uh, disembodied like modernist architecture pieces all on this grid that he painted this like just sort of like i don't know saccharine bubblegum pink and that pink was the pantone color of the year um the same year that i had my surgery and I thought that that was just a funny coincidence. And I also thought it was funny that the, um, the color was sort of the copy around the color was all talking about how it's so optimistic and such a color about like hope and brightness. And then, I mean, this is a bit uh, corporeal and uh, disgusting, but also like that Pepto-y color uh, reminded me of like what my body looked like when it was cut open. Um, I mentioned in the book, living with like a colostomy bag temporarily um, in between surgeries. And I mean, I can't really, that sounds so arbitrary, but something felt significant about, I mean, that, that work that that artist did was about the body in a way, specifically about, you know, undoing these like macho ideas of like these modernist ideas about the body as a machine and, you know, he kind of like laid it out 
by deconstructing, you know, these uh, pieces of architecture and painting them a really, a really garish, embarrassing color. And that's just kind of how I felt being like literally cut, cut open. I, I worry a lot about the way I write that people and people have accused me of just like, well, you don't even really, you just use other people's art to like talk about yourself or your own experience. And I'm like, well, what good is it for if it's not making my life better? Like at the end of the day, <laughs> why am I looking at this shit if it doesn't help me understand something either about myself or my relationship to the world? And so I've just become, and there's plenty of other art critics who, you know, maybe take more of a stance where they feel like they need to serve the work. But to me, the, the work is the thing that I'm writing and that's what I'm serving. It's not even me and it's not the gallery and it's not the artist. And it's not even the fucking artwork. It's the thing that I'm writing. So I just become more unapologetic about that when I find a, a, a confluence of maybe coincidences around a piece of art that I that are sort of that sort of stick and try to explore that. Yeah. I um and also you got some really good jokes in. I mean, calling your surgeon the Jeff Co- the Jeff Coons of butt. I like I laughed out loud. <laughs> and and yeah, you know, and also some nuances that I have heard friends express uh-huh. about being sick yeah. that I have not necessarily read in detail, you know, mm-hmm. like the part where you make a joke after surgery to make your family and boyfriend feel reassured that you're still you. Like that that whole managing the emotions of the people who love you yeah. is an aspect of Ill- illness that I think is like, I don't know, you made that comment about, Oh, all women write about their cancer or whatever. Yeah. But I actually think that <laughs> there is a lot of depth that, that doesn't has not been explored in writing. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely part of like, I don't, the writer like Bob Nikos, who's a, who's an art critic that I really love he mentioned this in an essay about this artist, Katie Nolan, who makes sculpture, but he's also was very perceptive in sort of connecting what she does to certain types of, of comedy. I mean, cause up comedy is such an American art form that like, on one sense there's, I love what I do. And I don't bring, you know, my, my comedy is I think comes from a really, really joyous place now, but sometimes it doesn't. And I definitely a big part of, my recovery was feeling like I needed to perform being a certain kind of patient, being a certain kind of cancer patient, having a certain kind of recovery, A, to just entertain people and B, yeah. So I just hated feeling pitied, you know, and I, and I hated seeing how stressed out my parents and my boyfriend were. And I just like, yeah, even in the midst of my, whatever I was going through, I felt the need to make them feel better about how bad I was feeling. Yeah. Okay. I have a lightning round set of questions for you Mm -hmm. that are, that are like, you know, quick, quick and dirties. (laughs) Um, If you want to play. Yes. Um, Okay. Uh, Well, I feel like I want to ask you uh, up front. I kind of, um, maybe based on a joke that you made, but uh, your favorite flavor of LaCroix or similar fizzy Bev. Limoncello. I am right now drinking Limoncello LaCroix with cold brew coffee and creamer all in the same glass. And it's kind of like a coffee, icy Italian soda. And it's really good. But I do, my boyfriend and I, we chug Limoncello LaCroix. 
Chug it. That is also my favorite. It's a very polarizing flavor, but I am so deeply on team limoncello with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> a good book that you read recently or, or a book you'd recommend that you read recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot of stuff uh, from female Jungian analysts. And I think that's opening. I don't really want necessarily want to recommend it because I think if, if that's not what you're into or that's not part of your journey, like you're just going to pick this stuff up and it's going to be gobbledygook. If it is part of your journey, if you feel drawn to a feminine union analysis, I would recommend uh, Leaving My Father's House by Marion Woodman and uh, On the Way to the Wedding by Linda Leonard. And also just, just point out it's very important that the wedding is actually just a, a metaphor for integration. It's not about like being in a relationship. The, the book that I would actually recommend that I, I tore through recently was um, Levels of the Game by John McPhee. Mm. It's so beautiful. So it's uh, our, John McPhee's, uh, I don't know, journalist. He's written like 40 books. He wrote a whole book about oranges. And then he wrote another whole book that's just about like the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And he wrote a whole other book that's just about like the California fault lines. He just wanted these. Um, he wrote one about the shad, like just about the fish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so many. And I don't know how he does it, but he can write a book about anything and it's so beautiful and it's so interesting. So the one I read recently, because I'm a big tennis freak. Uh, he wrote a book called levels of the game. The entire book is a stroke by stroke narration of a tennis match between uh, Arthur Ashe and Clark Gravener. Um, and Arthur Ashe is like, his tennis player comes from a working class background. He's black. Clark Gravener is a white, uh, bougie, upper-class kid. And um, this is like an important match, I think, at a, a U.S. Open. And it sounds boring when somehow he makes this uh, so gripping. I don't think you even have to be tennis to be, in t- be into tennis to be into this book. Okay, you have an essay in the book about collecting clothes or a mention of collecting clothes. So I want to know your current favorite item in your closet. <gasps> <laughs> devastating question i know uh, <laughs> i i think oh okay it will be because i i feel like i definitely also i i come from many places i come from uh um uh, i come from the the vacuum of the broken promises of modernism i come from mexico i come from art i come from los angeles but i also come from the early the early aughts uh, personal fashion blog, Osphere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I've been using some of my, and and I know this is not like a hallmark of, of like very self-possessed personal style, which is I think that, you know, when you get to a certain age, you kind of like, especially if you grew up in poor or like not even necessarily poor, but like when you get to a certain age and you sort of like retroactively revenge buy things that you couldn't have when you were younger. And even if maybe they don't even necessarily suit you. And for me, it was a very specific pair of those. I don't know if you remember these. They're called the Jeffrey Campbell Nightwalk. And they were those, um, they were like a knockoff of that big, that Al- that he- that Alexander McQueen high heel that like had- The armadillo no- shoe. Mm-hmm. The armadillo shoe. So Jeffrey Campbell made like, a uh, sort of down market petite bourgeois uh, version that was like a Mary Jane that has a giant like five foot tall sort of like platform. And it's, it has no heel. It's kind of counterbalanced in this weird way. 
and I bought. Oh, so it's sorry. It's not the armadillo shoe. I'm just correcting myself. I'm looking at a photo of it. Yeah, it's a different. But thing. like, just want like, to correct the record. But I know what you mean. Yeah, yes. the the, uh-huh. the the heel, the bottom portion of it is sort of like him. He took that from the Alexander McQueen armadillo shoe. Yes. And then he made, oh, and this is what Jeffrey Campbell does. He like steals a very specific part of a designer <laughs> shoe and then like takes it down to where it's like kind of tacky and wearable. Um, yes. I bought a pair of them on Poshmark because I just wanted them so badly when I was a young blogger. And I'm like, and they're so lame and they're so corny and sort of just like a, <laughs> just like a big, a big shoe that maybe like a suburban goth girl would wear but I I started to just sort of wear them out with like a dress or like a skirt and a t-shirt and I I think I'm if I'm wrong don't and you see me out don't tell me but I I think I'm pulling them off (laughs) um okay and last question favorite snacks besides limoncello LaCroix um yes an edible snack maybe I eat a lot of string cheese and almonds. <laughs> I'm basically, I just eat like a little mouse sometimes. Um, and I, I, it's what kind of almonds? Like, like not even fancy ones. Like just raw, nothing on them. Almonds. Raw. I like the process so of comfy. it. I like the ritual of string cheese. I see. I try to see how small of a string I can get. It's like a meditation, trying to find get the smallest string. <laughs> it, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a meditative practice. So it is. Yeah. So yeah. Now you're, now you're just making me feel snobbier because I'm like, well, um, my snacks are not only healthy, they're kind of spiritual. So I love yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And that's the end of my questions. Christina, thank you so much for being <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. What a delight. Thank you for doing that. Oh, the pleasure is all mine and can also be all yours. You can go to ChristinaCatherine.info where she has linked to some of her stand-up performances, where her social media is all linked. And we will also link to Hessa Press, which is the small press that put out her book, Aesthetical Relations. So you can buy directly from them because we love supporting a small press. We do love supporting a small press. Um, I am going back to bed to uh, deal with my broken body and my sciatica, but I will see you on the internet, my love. I will see you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac.